podcast season two episode four the website goldengoatguild.net golden goat guild at twitter follow the links to patreon if you would be so kind as to support this and the other projects one of which the main one of which i will update you on in just a minute patreon is i guess teetering on the verge of insolvency due to uh yet another quote banking crisis where hundreds of billions of fake dollars were reallocated with a couple of keystrokes and um, if you're like me you are still concerned about putting food on the table for your family and you know in, in with, with a sort of consistency with which that you might you might find the space and latitude in which to kind of be yourself and enjoy the process uh, the experience that is being a father and a husband but now nah, fuck you fuck me so um, as always I'm coming to you in a marginal space at the edge of, uh, or I should say from a marginal space at the edge of uh, the middle of nowhere. Heavily armed. Um, and for most of this season, the dogs have been involved. They are being good boys, but they probably will interrupt us at some point. Hunted and hounded, um, persecuted by agents of darkness hailing from both this world and the other but we keep on keeping on to uh, regurgitate the, the mixed bag for you in this opening segment well I'll give you uh, these updates first um, segment two is a uh, sort of um Technocultural commentary theory that has occurred to me of late. And hour two is going to be a big drop on the passenger, as well as um, I hear from writers uh, quite a bit, so I know that there are many in the audience. This will be, I think, of particular interest to you guys. A sort of, um, I'm going to attempt to open a portal in the back of my head and let you look through at the the process of rewriting which is really like an engagement with insanity and the management of that toward a fucking you know a beacon of light product if you will I hate that word product but uh, an object to art 
That's hour two. Quick rundown on the reading list. I like to always be uh, in several different books at a time. At the top of the list right now is Fed Book by John J. Stancliffe, A Tale from the City of Destruction. I'm about halfway through, and this is a damn good novel. I have cracked up heartily multiple times. It's an independent work, and I will be doing a full review, I think, within the month it just depends how all this other shit goes but um so far highly recommended i will definitely break it down in depth when the time comes second on the list hard rain fallen don carpenter haven't even touched it um but it's sitting there it was bumped out of the way actually by fed book saint augustine of hippo by miles hollingworth Miles Hollingworth is one of the best. I'm not sure if he, he's like a philosopher, mystic, rock on tour, sort of James Bond like character. Fucking incredible. The Protagonist Journey by Scott Myers. Classic. I've been uh, aware of Scott Myers for seems like 20 years long 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 time he's been around he has one of the biggest screenwriting blogs and most useful screenwriting blogs seems to be a um a fairly decent guy seminarian graduate of um, harvard divinity maybe seasons of the elk by michael furtman i got this whole stash of um small paperback what do we call them so far I've read like three or four this year and they're sort of like summaries from one hunter's point of view although this one so far is more of um kind of a overall pictographic everything elk um pretty well done Seasons of the Elk. At some point, probably in the spring, I will do a massive elk episode. Doors of Perception and Heaven and Hell by Aldous Huxley. Truly a classic. And um, revisiting it now, it it's... It's kind of an astounding piece of work. Presuming that the backstory around the origin of this book is, as we have it, is accurate. No reason to... I mean, he he did run in some fucked up circles. Pardon me. That aside... We can undoubtedly say that he 
he set the whole of psychedelia off on a pretty good you know modern times at least like modern western psychedelia it's it's just so obvious how his thinking still whether he was 100% accurate just at first swipe which he may, he I think he probably was but I think as well he he set out a tone and he made some fundamental observations right out of the gate what comes back to me in particular now there's Riker moving around in his bed my apologies is um that he essentially saw the issue of idealism i suppose platonism it, and and he had such a solid background it's interesting That's so little, because he got into a lot of other stuff, but so little got in his way. Because you would imagine he read Plato in particular, you know, like it would have been for him like 60 years before he took mescaline. Probably revisited it quite a bit. But the fact that he is just going directly to this observation of Two things, the experience of isness or suchness, the, the sort of absoluteness of, <laughs> of the experience. And then also to notice that there are these points where his identification of himself has been removed. He has joined into the flow. And uh, of course, he's got this like light, not lighthearted, but deft hand um, when he gets into his long kind of he I, I would have appreciated maybe half of his comparisons with painting I mean I don't know why that was so informative for him but it was moving on the Christian ending a book about orthodox burial Eliade, Rites and Symbols of Initiation. As well, we've got a few others laying around here. One I will grab in a second. Speaking of elk, I will put a bag of tea in an envelope and mail it to you if you can convince me that you already knew this. In the, in the old days, not Mountain Man days, I think we're talking 20s and 30s here. In the Yellowstone area, the elk had been hunted in Mountain Man days so heavily that they, they had begun this process of becoming mountain creatures they really were not you have to imagine they either they were just built with this incredible ability to survive virtually anywhere any condition 
who knows? But in any event, they sort of converge around Yellowstone. Teddy Roosevelt makes his moves, establishes some preserves, and the elk at this point had already sort of habituated themselves to the farmer's calendar. And so Niblin at the edges of the farmer's field became part of how they survived. None of this is quite relevant to the the odd factoid, but it's a setup for you. So winter comes and I'd like to know more about how this all worked, but because evidently you did still have to buy a tag. It was probably like 50 cents, if that. Um, and the way it was done was that a whole bunch of dudes would pile into their Model T's, drive out into the snow. So this is presumably all around Gardner, Cody, Jackson Hole, Rexford, Big Sky, maybe over into Wyoming in the like the Dubois, people coming out of Lander towards the park. And um, they would only go when it was snowing. That was just the sign. Like you didn't hunt elk in the late summer like we do now or the fall. And it was kind of a communal activity with dudes just taking pot shots. And whoever was nearest to the fallen beast would just tag him haul them off, throw them in the truck. And when enough of the passengers in that truck had what they, they came looking for, they would leave. As this sort of, this activity would push the elk out, obviously they, they, they're not stupid, so they, they took to the hills. And so in the next kind of wave of hunters, the next weekend, probably. Dudes would drive up in their trucks. Some were apparently still um, at least traveling to this sort of communal parking lot location by horse, but not really utilizing the horses for hunting. I'm sure some did, but it wasn't so common that it was mentioned. Hunters would then hike up the hill, find where the herd had coalesced up in some high little parkland. And because this process of hiking and expenditure of effort would winnow the numbers a bit, you presume that it wasn't such a, like a turkey shoot. It wasn't I mean, it sounded like hundreds of guns going off just willy-nilly until there was nothing else to shoot in front of them or else everyone had their fill and they could walk off. 
So these individual hunters up in the parklands, the higher elevation, would cap one and then have to drag him presumably some distance to get back to the slope. And then they would drag him down the slope. And after a while, an ice chute would form where all of these guys used the track four laid ahead of them. Such that when you got to the slope, you could mount your dead elk and grab him by the antlers. Your pals would give you a push and you could sled down the rest of the way on the body of your elk. The other thing, I, I'm not so sure that the antlers were, all, were also involved because the whole trophy bull is very recent. Everybody knew that they're disgusting to eat. Um, they mean they bathe in their own piss and shit. They piss on themselves. And maybe by winter, you know, a lot of this is sort of shed and washed off. But nonetheless, they burned up their fat reserves in the rut. While the females have, have retained that going into uh, this tough winter where they're pregnant. So everybody shot, pardon me, does. Recommended piece of gear. This was recommended to me by an avid warhorse absorber and um, tested it out in some pretty nasty conditions. The Duckworth Wool Cloud Jacket. It's it's hard to describe. It's it. I think it. I think it's just going to instantly replace. the down-filled or synthetic puffy. I th- from my, what I understand, it's sort of like felted merino within a light sort of, that same material that they put on, on the puffy jackets, this polyester. No, like almost no, there there doesn't seem to be any place, any seam where either wind or cold gets through. And the bulk factor is not even comparable. It's like wearing a, a hoodie, a little bit more than a hoodie, maybe like a fleece hoodie. Very interesting. I got a sweet deal on it, uh, like a like I stole it level good deal. Couldn't refuse. So far, I've taken it to twenty one degrees, and uh, just wearing sweats as pants. 
So if you're a dude that gets cold, or if you are a mountain man in general, check them out. I'm interested to see what they expand into. I'd like to, this material, whatever it's called, this sill nylon sort of stuff that's on every jacket is total shit. So they're going to have to do something about that. Kifaru, I never tested it, but they claimed to have developed or discovered a product that was very similar but tougher. Having lost a number of those puffy sorts of jackets, not even to anything that crazy, just basic work and hiking. Um, maybe maybe some of it was a little excessive, but a slightly tougher material that's not exactly the um, the Cuban cubbin fiber, which is very stiff and very loud. And not exactly, you know, soft shell material. Not exactly sure if we're going to develop as a technological uh, consumer culture far enough for that to happen. But something to think about. Okay, moving on 21 minutes. In terms of our criminal purpose ongoing concerns let me step over and grab it I have here for for your edification your consideration a little book by William Tompkins called Indian Sign Language if you're not familiar with this bit of lore um, the Plains Indians in America had developed imagine how long this would have taken what sort of efforts uh, they had developed a sign language of roughly a thousand you know words um, terms that was all but universal from I think the entirety um, west of the Mississippi there were always these bizarre little insular tribes. It wasn't the Anasazi, but it was one down in the southwest. I, it's, not, it's not coming to me, but they would more or less survive off of eating the seeds out of bird shit and lizard shit. They didn't get around much. They didn't make a lot of friends, evidently, nor did the Anasazi for that matter. So maybe it was this. I don't think it was the same, though. But a lot of these tribes had merged and reformed and split off from each other and were constantly getting in wars and reconciling, what have you. And so over whatever period of time, there developed this quasi-universal sign language. And uh, I've been, my wife and I have dipped into it a little bit. When our son was born, I bought this book with the plan that we would all three learn it together. And he's, he's not quite at the age where he can 
maintain a focus of attention on a thing such that I, I, but he can pick up words, you know, all day long. My plan, therefore, is to begin to introduce this between my wife and I, between mom and dad, and allow him to not make it a, a you know, sit down, okay, human who I love, I'm going to force you to do some shit that you don't want to do and probably aren't <laughs> neurologically maybe even equipped to do yet. I'm going to sneak it in and the benefits of this should be pretty obvious. I'll go ahead and point a few hypotheticals out. Hmm. There's this scene in Clay Martin's Wrath of the Wendigo where two dudes in a pretty tight spot need to have a very private conversation. And so they take their two phones and drop them into a Ziploc bag and a third guy walks away with the bag so they can speak freely. You can imagine any number of scenarios where a hand gesture, you can mime that out, right? Like, go to the cabinet and get a Ziploc bag. It's going to take you five minutes and eventually just fucking say it. You know, what are, what are you trying to say? Um, and I'll, you know, admittedly there isn't, as far as I know, um, a sign for Ziploc bag, but there's signs for concealment. And we have already a universal sign for the phone, right? The hang loose sign put to your ear. I think what it does is that affords you a lot of latitude to not say stuff. And it also cues your squad, your family, your children, your friends, into the fact that we do still have this capacity for communicating without language just by using our bodies. Um, and if you have built up as part of your family culture, I'm thinking here, my two sons. If this is part of their part of their growing up experience that they can, they have this option. I think that, you know, my hope is that we'll go some distance towards minimizing the need to, to constantly jibber jabber, which is sort of, oh, it's common to a lot of kids. And I, it's not that, it's not that I don't appreciate the jibber jabber. I mean, I make videos of it constantly. It's the cutest shit ever, but, um, it's more about intimacy and an interiority and being able to exchange that with somebody else without the complication of words is, is one layer of it. The second layer is obviously tactical, where um, if you have two, two individuals, be they brothers, friends, husband, and wife, who have 
habituated themselves to occasionally communicating in this way. When you do need to make a hand sign, uh, surreptitiously or otherwise, it would seem to me that the likelihood, pardon me, of the receiver cluing into that and catching it so you don't have to do it four times is exponentially, geometrically um, increased. Indian Sign Language, William Tompkins. I admit there is, um, there is in me a nostalgic, you know, appreciation um, as well capacities of the mountain man this was not I think that some people like like to uh, imagine that somebody like Jim Bridger who is reputed reported to um, to have been conversant in something like 12 different Indian languages or 11 and then English is maybe the 12th who knows um, my understanding is that some of that was in the way that if you speak French, you can pick up a good portion of Italian, let's say. Uh, there were, there were dialectical overlaps, but this was, and maybe the sign language, you know, uh, does account for, for one of the 12 languages that he spoke. but it was not as if six of those were some variety of a very basic and crude, you know, uh, 870 alphabetically arranged common words. So roughly a thousand. Um, It wasn't as if this singular uh, universal language would account for any of that. Let's see here on my list. So I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back and hit you with some schizo theorizing simply to warm you up for what I think is going to be some real, some real schizoid shit in uh, hour two. Next segment is still free. So again, goldengoatguild.net. Pick yourself up a t-shirt if you're interested. Um, there's other ways to support me and that project, which I didn't, uh, update you on. So I'll do that in the next segment. That is the, the book underway. Be right back. So avid absorbers will recall some pretty heavy visitations with Michael Hoffman in season one of The War Horse, where we went over psychological uh, or secret societies and psychological warfare and Twilight Language, which are his two best books. We probably did not talk too much about James Shelby Downard, who was Hoffman's mentor, evidently, nor I think we did mention King Kill 33, but 
and we sort of talked around it as I recall. This was the pamphlet authored, um, it, it seems to be a pretty, pretty much a joint venture between Downard and Hoffman. Hoffman probably puts the polish to Downard's pretty original um, mystical toponymy concept, which is the idea that there are these, maybe the generous way to say it is like associative giveaways in within an analysis. Uh, at one point, the one that always sticks with me is, pardon me, Uncle Ted taking up residence just a stone's throw away from the scapegoat mountains, sort of in central Montana. And there's a ton of stuff um, regarding the, uh, the nuclear test site, um, the Trinity site, Truth or Consequences, Jornada del Muerto, King Kill 33, is a similar associative bonanza of conspiratorial analysis. Again, mostly based off of um, the mystical toponymy idea, but they do a lot of, and I think it is both of them, do a lot of um, illusions and digging up of myth and great literature. So I picked up recently Stalking the Great Whore, The Lost Writings of James Shelby Downard. I read the first autobiographical volume that Downard put out. It was called The Carnival of Life and Death, which is a great title. The Carnival of Life and one syllable um, off. Supposedly uh, five syllable titles are the best, but still stalking the great whore. Stalking the great whore. I mean, it does kind of ring better. And the first one, Downard, it's more of a narrative about his early years. <clears throat> this one is, appears to be a sort of pastiche where some of it might have fit in the first volume. It's 400 pages, 300 and... 50 at least of those are kind of colorful distillations of his research, I suppose. At the end is probably the best piece of the book is Dr. Richard B. Spence, who himself is well known in the conspiracy culture professor at University of Idaho, I think. 
And this is his multi-year, it's a report on his multi-year saga to try and get to the bottom of the mystery that is James Shelby Downard. To avoid a massive detour, we'll just say that the shit that goes down in this guy's life is impossible to parse. It, um, it's either straight up fanta- the most fantastical lies that you could, you, they just cannot, if they're lies, um, he's just retarded because, you know, it's stuff like, um, going to Mexico, meeting a girl along the way who winds up later in life, like 20 years or something later, um, being an embodiment of of the great whore and also of his wife and because his wife winds up being sort of the great whore i mean there's there's one so he manages to marry the the high priestess of some sort of masonic death cult illuminati sect uh operating in america she is you know she divorces him or they leave or something they separate she winds up um she she really in like no bullshit it can be verified by third parties she does end up in the most bizarre circumstance possible and so it's that aspect of a lot of his stories which kind of makes you scratch your head she winds up actually associated with characters like um a variety of mob figures, um, J. Edgar Hoover, and this particular hotel vacation spot in California uh, almost seemed to be, I didn't dig into it, but it seemed to be something potentially like early ties to the Bohemian Grove set. Definitely mafia, definitely JFK characters, and it's 20-some years later after they are um, divorced. So there's like this deep psychological vein that you can mine in your own analysis. There's um, there's all sorts of, it's a, it's a head scratcher. That's all you can really, really take away from it, I guess. Going back to Spence and his analysis, He manages to locate, well, let's say that he manages to trace what seems to be a pattern where these fantastic events within Downard's life do seem to be associated by the places where the record shows that he was. For example, the Mexico thing, we'll finish that up. Pardon me. There's evidence that Trotsky was there at this time. How Shelby, who is... There's some suggestion, um, a little bit by Spence and others, that perhaps Downard himself was some sort of operative. 
Downer seems to imply, at least, that maybe they wanted him to be an operative and they put him through early versions of COINTELPRO and MKUltra, probably a handful of others. And as a result, he lost huge portions of his memory, which only came back to him later in life. Um, so this bit in Mexico, he's just a guy who's traveling. He picks up a girlfriend along the way. He takes a room. He's kicked out. He has to go to another place. A friend suggests, well, there's this new kind of B and, you know, B&B sort of place. Check it out. Takes a room there, snoops around, finds a false wall. Pulls out a huge sheaf of what he terms million-dollar gold certificates. The size of a placemat. Very official. The real deal. They show up later at later points in his life story as well. They seem to follow him around. At one point, he is lured into this Masonic crypt somewhere in the south. Maybe it was Memphis or Alabama. And there's a big trap, you know, a, a no-shit Rambo Predator-style trap, as I recall, set to kill him, which he manages to avoid. It's a lot like um, Bugs Bunny and Bugs's various uh, antagonists. The way that Downard manages to just narrowly escape, but also do it in a comic fashion. So he picks up this girlfriend. Um, he finds these million-dollar gold certificates. He winds up through an increasingly hard-to-believe set of circumstances in uh, Trotsky's office where Trotsky tries to electrocute him. And, you know, Spence makes this point in his afterward that... There's so much there's so much there that's so absurd um, and that is seemingly carried off with no apologies or no sense of justification for its its apparent absurdity. It just kind of he just lets it fly. <clears throat> I'm not sure how Michael Hoffman interprets all this. And the reason I bring it up, I, I got to tell you, I don't recommend the book. Um, I'll give you an example. You can more or less turn to any single page. Some of it's more interesting than other stuff. This is sort of good to know. The sun was personified and worshipped under the name Osiris. The moon was personified and worshipped under the name of Isis. Isis became the wife of Osiris, and then the blazing star was personified and worshipped under the name of Horus. That's actually kind of the whole central thing that you do want to know. Then they go on to the dog star. And this is the, that's the part that, um, that Hoffman 
isolates and pulls out. But here, so I flip forward about 200 pages. Um, damn, we're back at the dog star again. The dog star has been called the star of direction or the pointing star and is emblematical of a symbol of light of divine providence pointing out the way of truth. In the sun, earth, moon, Solomon, as in Solomon, star-worshipping system, the dog star can be considered a pointer with tree, pillar, and column association. Dives into masonry from there. A few pages later, the Tres Hermanas, Three Sisters Mountains near Columbus, are symbolically significant to the Three Sisters gang, uh, as our, it's there's a lot of typos in here too. Um, the three ravines, barrancas, called the Tres Hermanas, that come together at Guadajunto Hill of the Toads. Guanajuato. I'm not sure what toad is in Spanish. Three women dressed as three nuns. Skip back, you know. Um, and here, here he's going on about the sort of backstory of his wife, who is the great whore. The reason I bring this up is to attempt in live time to raise the analysis um, one, maybe two levels of abstraction to maybe illustrate for myself that there's something more than just a kind of, I mean, maybe he was one of the original architects of this, this line of thinking, much of it. I was going to say it's, it's uh, reheated, but maybe he was the, the original chef, I don't know in terms of the conspiracy culture. So raising it up one level, there we go to the conspiracy culture. Hoffman makes these criticisms now, and I think rightly so, of conspiracy culture so-called. Uh, he just doesn't really truck with it. There are plenty of shows that he will um, participate with I don't know why Jay Dyer has not done a heavy um, Hoffman analysis I know that the two have Hoffman's uh, I don't know sort of a, a free thinking Protestant or something and of course Jay is orthodox and very they're both have have their their areas of expertise and some of um, Hoffman's analysis of <clears throat> nefarious Catholic escapades do not sit well with Jay, apparently. But I would like to see those two uh, have an exchange. But the point was rather to say that Hoffman is correct, at least in, in that level of the analysis. And, I mean, hell, for that matter, Jay has made that same point. You know, that most, a lot of what goes down in conspiracy culture is ridiculous. 
And um, to see it as something ripe for a a heavy-duty operation like Q, it would... I mean, in retrospect, it's it's the timing made it really quite obvious. But um, and we've talked about you know our friend Cass Sunstein on this podcast before. The the next level of analysis is with respect to this idea that. We suffer under this delusion of an inherent separateness. And it's, I mean, fuck, we <laughs> suffer doesn't even cover it. Um, we're, we're so, you know, you hear the term alienated, tossed around anywhere. I mean, it's even in areas of the mainstream now. And to be fair, you know, the, the old school, late 90s, classical, liberal, um, lefty side, they were onto this shit way, way, way before um, anybody on the right was. Now, maybe they felt it and had some observations, but magazines like Adbusters had this shit skewered to the table. You know, not so much now. if at all now, right? Um, Separateness being intentional as opposed to sort of like a subsequent condition of our consumer madness or what have you. But at the level of our separateness, it really is evident that Something happens at the level of downards, mad, borderline, uh, if not, you know, I don't think, I don't know, schizophrenia is a strange one, so I don't think that, it seems to be a thing where you can function with it, and then you can't, and then it's out of hand. It doesn't to me, appear to be the case here with Downer. But at the level of this, you know, we call it schizo association. There's a sense that he is on to something. This is the moment in the movie where the conspiracy theorist has brought you in. You know, Rust Cole has opened up the, um, <laughs> the storage unit and and Marty's like, oh, God. The yarn is stretched from one pin to another, and it's multicolored, and there's a legend. And This particular condition, uh, and that I hesitate to say it's an archetype, but it's... Um, hmm. It's certainly something like a contemporary archetype, right? You whip out the yarn and the diagram and you know what you're dealing with. And so isolation and more so even than isolation, I think um, 
an alienation and it in a sort of extreme individuation you can see from the psychoanalyst point of view that this desperate you know reaching out if you will uh, like a like a rodent or something sort of digging up something anything to hold on to is an easy leap to make jumping back up to at least the level of um, your overlord uh, narrative crafters which you know I think they've given up at this point I don't, I don't think that I, I think that they shot QAnon may go down as I don't know some sort of is that a pyrrhic victory or is that an actual victory or will only time tell it's hard to say but really hard to say um but at that level you know it, it is it's got to be incredibly easy to take a look at that and then you know likely gain access to the the massive files of COINTELPRO uh and and its its spawn projects the online aspect itself is is alienating i don't see any i maybe there is some but to me it's just it's sad and that's kind of so what i'm speaking about is here like you know having friends online and this sort of stuff if you don't meet in real life you know how many people do you meet in real life who betray you it happens every day of there's almost you know zero incentive to not maintain loyalty of course this is you know the the, the unfortunate flip side to the positive and aspects of a non-culture, right? But I'm not here to criticize that at all. I definitely don't take uh, Peterson's side. and We all choose to, to fight how, how we have to, I suppose. In any event, it's the level of analysis or abstraction beyond conspiracy being a sort of cultural phenomenon, you know, something that organically emerges from the, the ennui and the existential dread of um, late, you know, what do they, what do they call it? We're like, we're now less than one minute away from the doomsday clock. We're definitely, the hour is late. Uh, no, and we're not talking here about uh, the the great game level of critique and you know predatorial game theory analysis. It's it's the level here you jump out of this altogether, and um, you wonder if. 
I'll see if I can pull it up, and that, that will help. Mm. If the hand should say to the foot, Because I am not the hand, if the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Forgive me for skipping around there. The point is... <clears throat> At the level of, let's just say, law, it would seem to me that um, morality is is always contingent. The fact that we have to make the law and enforce it, while this is. Mm, really let's just say it this way it's really useful um when you're the guy who comes out on top and it really sucks when you're the guy who doesn't justice you know set it aside in terms of a morality applied at this level of unity or oneness I suppose it could just be that this is all as said a kind of outworking of these various other forms, uh, forces in, in culture itself and the expression comes to its, you know, apotheosis of the, the isolated disrespected, uh, genius, unknown underdog. It's just incredibly hard to understand, however, how it would continue and continue to hold interest. And it, it makes me wonder if
stuff like stalking the great whore. Um, and there are many analogs to this in term, with respect to this point. Alex Jones works this side of the street every day. When Downard is doing this rodent routine of scratching and scratching and collecting and sorting and stacking up this, again, like legalistic sort of case, it's almost as if he's digging through some veil or try, you know, in attempting to do so. It, like that's the deeper urge. That's the actual, like, like the, the moral and, um, sort of divine urge towards connection and this between this veil this illusion of separateness and on the other side would be this unity where you know in the movie Downard himself would be standing there the architect of all this do you see where this is kind of trying to move around to if one part of the body is participating with another part of that body and it is the body it's the point of the corinthians there is is not i think like the foot has its own will it doesn't it's something closer to in terms of our analysis it's something closer to the reenacting of a myth in orthodoxy, there's the idea that, you know, in performing the liturgy, we are sort of play-acting, sort of, um, not play-acting, that's not, it. it's almost as if you are participating in this ongoing um, event, and you are stepping onto the stage on that day, in that place, to play that role you know, of the saved. Let me be clear here. I mean, the liturgy is also understood to be that actual thing that actually is happening. But insofar, we have, the, we have this, uh, all of these urges and, um, again, a, like rodent a rodent-like compulsion to compartmentalize and and draw up these and, you know, build an app for your app for your app and then put it on a phone where you keep your other phone in a mirror phone, which is actually a fucking computer. But all you do, you know, if you're me, is uh, check your texts and your email and scroll through Twitter on occasion. Anyway, we will expand upon this in hour two it's going to be like i said we're going to i'm going to uh oh don't fail me now it's not trepidation it's not trepanation is it trepan i think it's to trepan where you bore a hole in your head i'm not going to do that either i'm just going to attempt to 
bring in some of this level of analysis um, into the passenger analysis, the ongoing unveiling excavation of uh, Cormac McCarthy, the man, as he is known, uh, his presumably final two offerings. So subscribers, hang on. For the rest of you, make your way on over to Patreon, pick a tier, and subscribe. There's 50-odd episodes now and a bunch of other offerings to interest. And um, if you have any questions, wherever you found this link, you know, you can DM me or ask. I am on Twitter. Again, the handle is Golden Goat Guild, and it's goldengoatguild.net. Um, if you want to find the website, pick up a copy of King of Dogs. Worth noting here at this juncture that while I have... I uh, there's sort of an understanding that King of Dogs is, as we say, the best novel of the past decade. I realized that when The Passenger and Stella Maris were published out of, a, you know, an, an exorbitant level of uh, respect, an abundance. It would be proper to say that it was it is the best book that was published between I think that was two thousand and seven when the road came out. So we'll just tuck it in there. King of Dogs, you can pick it up on the website or on Amazon. I will give subscribers the full rundown on the latest book, but I'll say now that it's um it's in late draft phase at this point, and uh, it's going well. All right. Adios, amigos. Subscribers, we'll see you soon.